we have made this clear and honorable national commitment to the cause of man's survival. This small step toward safety can be followed by others. With our courage and understanding enlarged by this achievement, let us press onward in quest of man's essential desire for peace. As President of the United States, and with the advice and consent of the Senate, I now sign the instruments of ratification of this treaty. That was President Kennedy in 1963, speaking about one of the most important treaties in nuclear history, the Limited Test Ban Treaty, which banned all nuclear tests above ground, in space, and underwater. Only underground nuclear tests were permissible under the treaty. Today, this agreement may seem obvious. Why would anyone test nuclear weapons above ground? At the time, above-ground nuclear tests were actually relatively common. The United States, Soviet Union, and United Kingdom in total tested hundreds of nuclear weapons above ground until they signed the Limited Test Ban Treaty. Some of those tests were particularly infamous. The United States, for example, tested its largest nuclear weapon in 1954. Known as Castle Bravo, the test took place in the Marshall Islands. The weapon designers predicted a yield of about 6 megatons, or about 400 times more powerful than the bombs used on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Absolutely terrifying, right? Well, they miscalculated. When the bomb exploded, it produced a yield of about 15 megatons, or 1,000 times more power than the bombs used against Japan. And the effects of this test were devastating. Nuclear fallout was dispersed on the inhabitants of other atolls nearby that weren't evacuated. In some cases, children played with and even ate radioactive debris that rained on them. Shortly after, nuclear fallout hit a Japanese fishing vessel that was about 80 miles away from the test site. One member of the crew died months later from radiation poisoning, and the others faced severe health consequences. But if you think that was bad, the Soviet Union was even worse. In October of 1961, the Soviet Union detonated a more than 50 megaton nuclear weapon over the Russian Arctic Sea. Known as Tsar Bomba, it was about 3,800 times more powerful than the weapons used on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The bomb was so massive that the air crew delivering it were told they only had a 50-50 chance of flying far enough away in time to avoid the blast. When it detonated, the so-called absolute destruction ring had a radius of almost 22 miles, and its mushroom cloud was 40 miles high. The crew that dropped the bomb ended up surviving, but their plane instantly lost more than 3,000 feet of altitude the instant Zarbama went off. There are even tales of windows of buildings shattering nearly 600 miles away. What's amazing about this story is it could have been worse. Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev initially wanted to develop and test a 100 megaton bomb, twice as large as Zarbama. Thankfully, that never happened. And about two years later, following the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Limited Test Ban Treaty came into force, banning these dangerous and unnecessary above-ground nuclear tests.
This is Nukes of Hazard, a podcast from the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation in Washington, D.C. I'm James McKeon, a policy analyst here at the Center. Today, we're talking about the direct effects of the use of nuclear weapons. We'll have more on nuclear testing in a bit, but first, we wanted to discuss the actual implications of a nuclear weapon going off, not just for testing, but in an actual war. Dr. Michael Mills is a scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in the Earth System Laboratory in Boulder, Colorado. Dr. Mills is a premier expert on the effects of what's known as a nuclear winter, a phenomenon that would take place after a nuclear war. Here's the very basic science. A nuclear war would cause unimaginable fires that inject soot into the atmosphere, which in turn would block some sunlight from reaching the Earth's surface. This would then cause the Earth's temperature to cool dramatically, which would cause environmental pressures and threaten billions of lives. It's harrowing stuff. I spoke to Dr. Mills over the phone earlier this week, and I'll let him better explain the science and implications of a nuclear winter. Dr. Mills, thank you for being with us. My pleasure, no problem. So let's get right into it. At the basic level, what exactly is a nuclear winter? So the use of nuclear weapons in urban centers produces horrific local devastation, as we evidenced at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But in addition to the death and destruction from the initial explosions, nuclear weapons produce firestorms which build for hours, turning the targeted cities into fuels for their own destruction. So they release a lot more energy than the nuclear weapons themselves just by creating these firestorms. And millions of tons of smoke from these firestorms would rise into the atmosphere and circle the globe for years, blocking out sunlight, and that would cause temperatures and precipitation to drop. This would cause crops around the world to fail and lead to global suffering. This concept known as nuclear winter first became evident in the early 1980s as researchers applied lessons drawn from the newly discovered cause of the end of the dinosaurs and asteroid impact to the aftermath of a nuclear war. The first papers on nuclear winter were published in 1982, 1983, and 1984. By 1986, the total number of weapons in the possession of the United States and the Soviet Union began to fall, and it's continued to fall since then. And both Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev spoke of the findings of scientists on nuclear winter as a motivation for arms reduction. In 2014, you and colleagues at the University of Colorado and Rutgers University published an in-depth study that covered the global impacts of a war with 100 nuclear weapons between India and Pakistan. And in that study, you concluded that such a conflict could trigger a global famine, ozone depletion, and many other negative consequences for the entire planet. Can you talk about those findings? If 100 atomic bombs uh, the size used in Hiroshima were detonated in modern cities, as we looked at in our study of a war between India and Pakistan, The firestorms that would build up for hours after these explosions would produce millions of tons of smoke, and heated by sunlight, much of it would rise to the stratosphere where it would circle the globe immune to rain out for decades. Our calculations show that global average surface temperatures would drop by nearly 1.5 degrees Celsius, or nearly 3 degrees Fahrenheit, and would remain below normal even after 26 years after this war. And after 26 years, the temperatures in the one kilometer below the surface of the ocean are still cooling. 
the smoke also heats up the stratosphere. It absorbs sunlight, heating the stratosphere by more than 90 degrees Fahrenheit, 50 degrees Celsius. And what that does is it accelerates chemical processes that destroy ozone, and it ends up producing a near-global ozone loss on the level that we see now in the Antarctic ozone hole. So it's a near-global ozone hole. And the consequences of severe ozone loss include rapid sunburn, higher skin cancer, damages to crops and ecosystem on the land. In the ocean, the phytoplankton that form the basis for the food web would be threatened by this ultraviolet, as would the larval and developmental stages of many marine organisms. We used uh, crop models to look at how agriculture would be affected by a nuclear winter. The colder temperatures would bring reduced growing seasons and the cold spells during the growing season, resulting in slower growth and lower yields. Darkness means there'd be less sunlight available for photosynthesis, and reduced rainfall also makes it harder to grow crops. In addition, you can think of many other problems for agriculture that we haven't included in these models. So we concluded that these crop reductions could put 2 billion people at risk of starvation after a regional nuclear war. Okay, so there are about 15,000 nuclear weapons on the planet, and over 90% of those are held by the United States and Russia. Broadly speaking, what would the Earth look like after a much larger war, like, say, a conflict between those countries? Yeah, so one of my colleagues, Alan Robach at Rutgers, actually did uh, this scenario of a war between the U.S. and Russia. And so while the global climate consequences of a regional nuclear war would be devastating, a nuclear war between the U.S. and Russia would be catastrophic. With the arsenals that the U.S. and Russia have left, the war would still produce about 150 million tons of smoke. That's 30 times larger than the India-Pakistan war we just looked at. So he found that temperatures at mid-latitudes would remain below freezing for years to follow, every month of the year. This is a true nuclear winter. It would eliminate agriculture at mid-latitudes for more than a decade, leading to mass starvation. So, some skeptics of nuclear winter say that, if it's real, we should have already seen the effects. They'll point to the hundreds of above-ground nuclear weapons tests that took place during the Cold War, including the largest test in human history, the Russian Tsar Bomba test, which was over 3,000 times more powerful than the bombs used on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. As a nuclear winter expert, what is your response to those claims? Well, that's a great question, and it's a question I get a lot from people We've done a lot of floating of these weapons in the atmosphere, on the ground, and we haven't had nuclear winter. Basically, a nuclear explosion in itself can produce a lot of energy and radiation, but it doesn't necessarily produce a nuclear winter. What produces a nuclear winter is what happens after you explode a bomb inside a city, and many cities, to be specific, at the same time. You get these firestorms that build up in cities, uh, and this happened in World War II, not just at Hiroshima, but it happened with incendiary bombings that were designed to produce firestorms in Hamburg and Dresden and Tokyo, such that small fires built into larger fires and created their own weather. So we know this happens in um, the destruction of a, a large city by bombs. So that's what produces the smoke, is the energy from burning all the material in the city, basically all the buildings and everything that's in, this, in the city 
turns into smoke. That doesn't happen when you explode a bomb over a desert island in the middle of the Pacific or in a desert in Nevada or underground. So this is a very different case. We have evidence of large fire forest fires putting smoke into the stratosphere. We've seen this from satellites. And so this is something that we know happens when you get a lot of smoke in, into the atmosphere from a large fire. So one final question, Dr. Mills. Today's main existential threat is often identified as climate change. And activists and policymakers around the world are working to find solutions and hopefully save the planet from the severe long-term consequences that climate change would cause. Do you think that those concerned about climate change should also be concerned about a nuclear winter? And why? Yeah, I'm someone who is very concerned about global warming and about nuclear winter. Global warming is a planetary problem, potentially a catastrophe on many levels that is unfolding slowly over this century. And it's only going to get worse as we build up more greenhouse gas in the atmosphere. And most of the carbon dioxide will stay in the atmosphere for thousands of years, continuing to warm the planet and transforming the planet for future generations. So it's definitely something we need to be working on. A nuclear war in itself would, of course, kill millions of humans and cause a lot of local suffering. And in addition, it would create a global darkness, a global suffering and crop failures. If it were a, a large nuclear war, it could produce ice age conditions. And so it has a potential in a short term, in, in a few years, to cause huge numbers of deaths, perhaps even elimination of our species or many other species. And so it's a climate catastrophe that is more immediate and on a different scale in terms of happening more rapidly than global warming. So I'm worried about nuclear winter as perhaps the primary threat for our species. Today in New York, the United Nations General Assembly voted overwhelmingly to adopt the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty and open it for signature later this month. On behalf of the American people, I will have the honor to sign this historic treaty. With this treaty, we are on the verge of realizing a decades-old dream that no nuclear weapons will be detonated anywhere on the face of the Earth. The Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, or CTBT, would put a global ban on all nuclear weapons testing, including those underground. And when President Clinton signed the treaty in 1996, there was real hope that this ban would become a reality. The need for explosive nuclear testing was considered unnecessary by most nuclear scientists, and about four years earlier, President George H.W. Bush had instituted a unilateral nuclear testing moratorium. To become official, the U.S. Constitution requires any formal treaty to pass through the Senate with a two-thirds majority. But in 1999, the Senate couldn't get the votes needed to pass. U.S. ratification of the treaty has been in limbo ever since. But despite the Senate not giving its consent to ratification of the CTBT, President George H.W. Bush's nuclear testing moratorium is still in effect. 
In fact, our nuclear scientists and engineers have certified every single year that our stockpile is safe, secure, and effective, and that no explosive nuclear testing is necessary. Still, the calls to explode nuclear weapons haven't gone away, and it might even get worse. Some in Washington have called for building new nuclear weapons, something we haven't done since the end of the Cold War. Our list of concerns about building new nukes is very long, but the relevant concern related to testing is simple. If we build new nuclear weapons that have never been tested before, the pressure to test them will be enormous. And if we start testing again, the chances would increase that Russia, China, India, and Pakistan would also test once more. That would be bad not just for us, but for everyone on the planet. If you live in or near Nevada, this would be particularly awful, because that's likely where the tests would take place. Instead of pushing for nuclear testing or new nuclear weapons that we don't need, we should begin to take the steps to finally ratify the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. It's long overdue, and there is simply no scientific or political rationale for not signing this agreement. North Korea is the only country to test nuclear weapons in the 21st century. The United States has no business joining them. If you enjoyed this episode of Nukes of Hazard, please consider giving us a rating on iTunes. It would really help us out. And if you have any questions or comments, you can shoot us an email at podcast at armscontrolcenter.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at at nukes underscore of underscore hazard. Our Facebook page is www.facebook.com slash armscontrolcenter. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon.